morning, church. It's good to be back with you again this Lord's Day morning. Uh, special thanks to Dan, Pastor Dan, and the praise team. Just the bare bones, just uh, basic uh, guitar, keyboard, and singing it was so good to uh, worship God together in that way. And maybe I'm getting older, but uh, you know, uh, I like to hear voices when I when singing. I like to hear congregations um, joined in song, singing together, and it was a delight to have the music support us singing uh, worship songs to our God together. Um, you know, I addressed this in our communion service uh, maybe a few months ago. I don't quite remember when I said this. I shared how there is a problem within our church. Uh, something is not right with our church. And I looked for an opportune time for me to address it from the pulpit. And, uh, you know, in light of me coming back and kind of hard to jump right into Second Timothy, I thought I'd take this t- time this morning to address this issue, and uh, we'll jump into Second Timothy next, next week. The problem that I see in our church, and the elders have discussed it for some time now, is the lack of church discipline. Lack of church discipline. In the past at least three to four years, if not in a single case, maybe three years, a single case of um, step three in our process of church discipline, there could only be three possibilities. Um, possibility one is that we're not lovingly confronting one another um, when Christians sin. Second possibility is that all our church disciplines are being dealt with at steps one and two, private and semi-private context. Or the third possibility is that every single Christian at Cornerstone is obeying Christ perfectly, that we have vanquished sin in our midst and we're living victory to victory, uh, perfect obedience to Christ. I don't know, I humbly believe it can't be the third one, especially in my life. And hopefully it's the second but I have a sneaking suspicion that it might be the first, the first reason. That we are not, um, our immune system is not, it's not strong and healthy. Maybe we need a shot of, what vitamin is that? Vitamin C, Albert Lowe, right? Uh, vitamin C, I think, or D or E, I don't know, Laura, tell me later. But we need a, we need a boost from the scriptures to uh, boost up our immune system to um, practice this because it's so, so important for church life. So important for Christ's church. So important that Christ gave this command even before the birth of the church. Right? The first time Ecclesia is mentioned in the Bible is Matthew 16. There are no commands there, no imperatives, no exhortations, just Christ's unilateral promise of the church that he will build it up and the gates of Hades will not overcome her. The second time Ecclesia is mentioned in the uh, Gospels is Matthew 18. And there he commands Christians to practice this discipline. Before we were even born, Acts 2. That's how important it is. Um, Taking uh, instruction from this, if Serene gets pregnant again, we're going to practice this. Before the child is even born, we're going to start commanding the child in the womb, obey God, obey mommy and daddy. To highlight how important it is. Well, that highlights it for us, how important this is to the church. You know, I've been going to the church, going to church since I was second grade. And 
I, like many of you, I grew up in churches where church discipline was not only not practiced, was, but was not even mentioned. Uh, not a single study ever in Matthew 18 or Galatians 6 or James 5. Not even mentioned. So much so, in fact, that I didn't know church discipline even existed until I went to seminary. It was my second semester at the Master's Seminary where someone mentioned church discipline. And in my uh, just ignorance, I thought it was Christians getting together for like physical discipline, for training, exercising, getting fit, right, running laps and uh, eating healthily. I'm like, hey, I'm down for that. I, I want to be church disciplined, right? <laughs> I didn't say that. That's what I was thinking. And to my shock, I read Matthew 18 later on. And I praise God that I didn't say anything in class. Right? Because that's the kind of church environment that I grew up in, as many of you. Where professing Christians were, to say the least, very lax in their walk with God. In fact, it was very common to see blatant sins practiced by Christians in the church. It was abnormal to have Christians actually live out their faith in Christ. It was like, to see a true Christian was something weird. Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you such a, you know those students in high school, like they study during lunch breaks, right? During recess, they're, they don't go to play basketball, they don't go to hang out with their friends, they stay in class to like do homework for the next day. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, you actually do homework, you actually study well, that's the kind of view we had of Christians in the church, the two or three people who actually like, followed Christ. Because it was so abnormal. What was normal was, ah, oh, we all profess Christ, but I mean, wink, wink, wink. We, we don't live as Christians. Many sins were practiced with brazenness and without shame. Not only by members, but by those in leadership as well. I mean, I have seen things in the church, I'm sure like many of you, we could gather around, you know, and talk, wax eloquent all day long about things that we have seen in the church that have turned our stomachs, that have horrified us, that we cannot believe. And you have told me some horror stories, and some of them surpass my horror stories. It's unbelievable things that have been done in the church by members, by leaders, and even by pastors. I mean, I've seen, like, heard of lawsuits in the church, I mean, like fisticuffs, literally, like, Guys in suits, getting at it um, on church grounds. Leaders embezzling money. Members and leaders living in sin. Um, so much so that it is um, pervasive in church life. The church rationalizes, justifies, and defends sin. And so sad to say... It is still one of the most neglected commands in the church today. Still to this day. The Reformation is indeed not over. Reformation continues and has a long way to go. And we will know that the church has matured. Church has really grasped the understanding and the implications of the gospel when the church takes seriously this command of Christ to confront sin in our own lives and in our own families and in our own church. But that day 
still long ways away. Martin Bucer was one of the contemporaries of John Calvin, and he considered uh, church discipline to be one of the three marks of a true church. One of the three marks. The first mark, he said, was expository preaching, where God's word is heralded. The Roman Catholic system is one of uh, sacraments and rituals. It's one of just good works of attaining salvation by deeds and religious works. What well, said biblical Christianity apart was the proclamation of the whole counsel of God's word when believers are gathered together in the worship of God, where the high point of worship was preaching of Scripture. So he considered the first mark of a biblical true church is expository preaching. So he exhorted all believers to, to, to value this in the life of the church and to encourage this in all true churches. The second uh, mark was biblical ordinances, that the church was committed the two ordinances given by Christ to the church, the one of baptism and one of the Lord's table. Right? Christ commanded that we be baptized in His name, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christ commanded that we remember His cross, remember His death, His resurrection, His return, until He comes in His kingdom. And so a church that neglects these two ordinances uh, fails to be a biblical church. And the second mark is a practice of ordinances. And the third mark of a true church is church discipline. So we encourage, we exhort our members who, for various reasons, have to move to a different location. And they have to do that arduous work of looking for a biblical church. We tell them, you're not going to find, I mean, the perfect church. Cornerstone is far from perfect. I mean, we're, we're just trying. We're just striving. Um... But you want to, you don't want to be judgmental, you don't want to be hypercritical, you don't want to have like standards beyond and above scripture. And cornerstone cannot be the standard, no way. I mean, that's shooting too low. But the three things you must look for are these three things. Do they preach expositionally? Do they explain, explicate the word of God? Do they practice baptism and the Lord's table, communion? And third, ask them, do they practice church discipline? Do they lovingly confront sin in the church? Now, if it is so emphasized, it's important by Christ in the Scriptures and by, uh, by Bible teachers throughout church history. Why is this so neglected in the church today? Why is it so ignored and uh, neglected in the church today? I mean, many, many reasons. I, I, first reason I came up with is a wrong view of love. Wrong view of love. I mean, it's understandable for non-Christians to see this as a wrong. It's not loving to confront sin. But it, it cuts to our hearts when believers think this and say this. That it is not loving to confront sin and to stand for righteousness, to stand for Christ. To reprove a sinner by many is considered... Not Christ-like. The adage goes, it's a private thing. And it is none of your business. None of the church's business. But the contrary is true. Church discipline, confrontation, correction and rebuke is motivated by true love for God 
and true love for the person who is in sin. Unwillingness to correct and rebuke a believer who is sinning is a form of passive hatred. Passive hatred. Active hatred is, I'm going to slander you. I'm going to gossip you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to malign you. I'm going to do things to you to hurt you. Passive hatred is a sin of omission. I am not going to fulfill my responsibility before Christ to spiritually care for your soul. And so by my passivity, it's my way of hating you. So in all my years as a Christian, when I'm confronted with the, the issue of do I correct this person or not, and I go through a, a litany of reasons why I ought not address this issue. You know, what if the person gets offended and doesn't like me and, you know, walks out or, oh, I'm so busy. I've got, I've got four kids, right? I'm, I'm busy with my own life. I've got so many things to worry about. I don't need another burden issue in my life. And who am I? You know, and why am I the only one? And all these reasons. But when it comes down to it, the issue is, do I love Christ? Do I love Christ's church? And do I love this person? And what motivates my heart to not go to this person is, man, I don't want to love this person. I don't want to care. I, I don't want to be burdened. Because it's my selfishness. It's my self-centeredness. Because the most loving thing you can do to a fellow believer is to care for their souls by lovingly confronting sin. A love that tolerates sin in favor of maintaining peace in the church is not God's kind of love. It's not Christian love. It's not Christ-like. We're not rocking the boat by addressing sin. We are causing the ship to sink if we allow sin to flourish in our midst, in our church. I mean, Christ, you look at Christ's seven um, addresses to the seven local churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And we see how Christ led and Christ spoke and Christ encouraged these local churches. And each one of them, except for Philadelphia, he had a rebuke, he had a censure, because he loved and cared for them. Some believe that it is intolerant. Right? Some believe that we, it's, it's, it's not right to judge, that we have no right to judge others, and they misinterpret and they prove text, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, or you too will be judged. When in that very same chapter Christ said, judge the fruits of the Pharisees. These uh, mindsets, these ideas are all popular today, even in the church, but they do not square with the Word of God. I mean, they do not square with common sense. A simple illustration is you find a child you know, playing with a steak knife. Right? You find a child playing with, I don't know, an electric drill or, or playing with a gun. Oh, I don't want to judge. I don't want to get involved. I don't I want to be tolerant. Everybody has different kinds of toys. Here, kid, here's some bullets, you know. Why don't you put it in a gun and, you know, have fun, you know. Have fun all day. I mean, that's just, that's absurd. That's not loving. That's not, 
caring, a loving mother, a loving person would rebuke the child and take it away. Right. You know, we sin is a moral issue. Right. It's not a philosophical issue. It's not about a tolerance. It's a moral issue. We are not to be like the Taliban, taking away freedom and telling people what to do. No, but being a Christian is not a right, it's a privilege. Professing Christ and being members of a church is not a right, it's a privilege. And if you violate um, the conduct code of any privilege, that, can, that should be dealt with and can be taken away. I remember um, 10th grade, we used to have this thing called driver's ed. Right? Most of you don't know what it is. But in our I mean, greater idea, it's socialism and you know, public education doing everything, they used to actually teach us how to drive in school. And the first class was all about how driving is not a right, but it's a privilege. If you break you know, the speed laws, laws of our city, county, state, and federal laws, this right can be taken away from you. Now, you can drive in your private driveway, up and down that driveway in your garage. You can go to another country and reapply for a driver's license. But if you, you know, repeatedly break laws, your driving privilege can be taken away. Likewise, in the church. Another reason it is so neglected is it's prompted by a wrong view of salvation. Wrong view of salvation. And this um, popular idea of, of non-lordship salvation, that Christians can accept Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. Lordship is optional for a Christian. That repentance is optional. It's separated from true faith and can be a later occurrence. That by simply believing in the propositional truth of the Bible, you can become a Christian. And whether you commit to Christ, whether you repent, whether you commit to obeying Christ, that's optional. So Christians can have, be in a permanent state of sinfulness, and that's okay. Because they are uh, carnal Christians, fleshly Christians. And they use 1 Corinthians 3.1 as a proof text. And so, someone who is living in sin, to confront them of sin, you're denying the gospel. Not only is it unloving, it is not practicing grace. It is not being gracious. What if that person falls away from Christ because you confronted sin? We would we would strongly state that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. That Christ, who died on the cross, delivers us from sin. That though sin is still in our flesh, it has been dealt a mortal wound, and Christ reigns in the life of the believer. And like moth to a flame, the faith of a Christian causes him or her to cling to Christ And have these holy affections. A sincere willingness to hate sin, repent of it, and turn to Christ. There will be a wholehearted desire for holiness. Yes, the believer sins and will sin. But 
because he or she is saved, he or she will respond just like David to the prophet Nathan right? and go to, go to God and, and pray out Psalm 51. Pray out Psalm 51 just like Peter went outside and wept bitterly after having denied Christ before his presence three times. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Why? Because God through Christ gives new hearts. So, a right view of salvation would cause us, but a wrong view of salvation would cause us to neglect this discipline. Maybe the final one is uh, they don't see the Word of God as the final authority in the church. It's the stated authority, but really the functional authority, the real authority is um, some other end, some other purpose. There's a different agenda, true agenda, unstated, but it's a true agenda. Uh, the chief one in America is, uh, you know, success. And we love success stories, right? We love, like, you know, these companies that succeed, these athletes, these superheroes, right? And we love Christian superheroes or Christian churches that do well. So the hidden agenda for many is church growth. And so you don't want to do anything that hinders the growth of the church. And so the authority is not the Word of God, but it's what will cause people to feel good and keep coming back for more and uh, you know, want to invite their friends and invite their neighbors and where their emotions are. You know, they're inspired and encouraged and and they feel you know, the love of Christ. That's the agenda, rather than agenda being the word of Christ. Right. Ultimately, too many churches do not hear the church discipline because they simply do not see the scriptures as the final authority. And that demonstrates what they believe in their hearts. Right? A true doctrinal statement is not written on a website. A true doctrinal statement is not written on a piece of paper. True statement of faith is what we practice. Right? That's what Christ said. Judge fruit. Judge behavior. Judge action. Everyone has good intentions. Everyone is sincere. Everyone desires to do what is right. But what God looks at is what is the verb? What is the fruit? What, is, what are the decisions? Same thing in the church. How you preach tells, tells, you, tells us what you really believe about the Bible. Right? How you live your life shows everyone your faith. Not what you say about your faith, but how you live out your faith or how you don't live out the faith. Same thing in the church. How the leaders in the church practice ministry shouts out their convictions about scripture not what their website says right not what their brochures say and so one of the litmus tests of true fidelity to scripture is do they practice you know page one of ecclesiology page one you know chapter one of ecclesiology which is matthew 18 right it is this negligence of church discipline it is the Proud of the pragmatism that has infiltrated the ranks of Christian leadership. It is what happens when Christian leaders adopt the marketing principles of this world. Business philosophies, right, secularism, like worldly ideas. They 
wholeheartedly seek after building a mini kingdom of the world rather than the true kingdom of Christ. These are the reasons why it is so neglected. And maybe in our church as well. Right? Maybe in our own lives as well. Maybe in the secret recesses of all, of each of our hearts. Every single one. No one is immune to these, these things. We each um, maybe harbor and, and still have within us, in residual levels, a wrong idea of love. A wrong idea of tolerance. We, maybe each of us are still hold on to a wrong view of salvation. Maybe some kind of quasi, you know, hyper-Calvinism is really like God's sovereignty at the expense of the Word of God, right? Hyper-Calvinism is attitudinal. It's not doctrinal. Hyper-Calvinism is God's sovereign. If He wants to confront that brother of sin, He will do it in His own time. I am just going to you know, sit here and read my Bible and pray and follow Christ. I trust in God's sovereignty. That's hyper-Calvinism. Wrong view of salvation, wrong view of the Word of God. Maybe each of us harbor somehow a wrong view, the final authority in our own Christian lives, where we relate to one another not as God owns our relationship, God owns our friendship, God owns our church, so how I relate to one another is determined by God because He's the final authority. Instead of doing that, we're all maybe a bit pragmatic in our relationships. How I like this guy. You know, he's a good friend. Or I like her. I don't want to be alone at church drink snacks. What if nobody comes to me? Right? What if like nobody calls me to hang out? And you know, what if nobody sits with me at the communion table? So for my own benefit, I'm going to just like everybody and just kind of go with the flow. Because what I, my agenda is my own success or fulfillment rather than what does God's word say. And I'm here as an ambassador for Christ, to stand for Christ in his church. So not only is it neglected in churches outside, but maybe it's neglected here in our own church for these re- reasons. Let me propose to you uh, just several reasons why we ought to practice church discipline. Some truths that Maybe we'll be fuel for our engines and motivate us to do this. First is um, for reconciliation. Reconciliation. The driving purpose of church discipline, that's a misnomer. It's a mislabeling. It's a mistitling. It should be church reconciliation, church restoration. It should be search and rescue. Because the ultimate, not ultimate, sorry, the driving purpose is to restore a wayward Christian. Restore a wayward Christian. James 5, 19 and 20. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You're saving, you're delivering, you're redeeming, you're helping. Right? Someone's about to make a tragic error. Right? And you're there and say, brother, hey sister, this is the truth. And that person says, you know what? Man, you saved me. You delivered me. If I went on that road, on that fork in the road, I went that way. 
Wow, my life be filled with grief and pain and heartache for me, my family, my pastors, my, my leaders, my fellow Christians. Right. Thank you. Galatians 6 1. Someone is caught in sin, brothers. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. Restore. It's for restoration. Hebrews 12, 5-7. My sons, do not make light of of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when He rebukes you. And God rebukes us through secondary means, ordinary means of the local church. Alright. I mean, if you hear the audible voice of God rebuking you, I'd be deathly afraid, right? That's, I mean, she did something really horrible for God to come to you and rebuke you in person. That hasn't happened since, you know, like Revelation, you know, AD 95. So that's not, you know, God's normative ordinary means. God rebukes us through secondary ordinary means, which is through scripture, through the church, through fellow Christians. And, Hebrews says, do not make light of it. Remember this. The Lord disciplines those He loves. Those He accepts as a son. In fact, if you are not rebuked, if you are not disciplined, God is choosing, treating you as an illegitimate child. God is treating you as a foster child. Not one of His own. So this has happened in our church. I say this all the time. You know, like I shared this illustration like years ago. And these five guys sinned against, uh, I don't know, sinned against me in our church, whatever. And I rebuked four of them. The last one, really, I just didn't get to him, right? He was on my list. And like, I just, you know, forgot. I was busy. I was, and he heard and he came to me and he said, Pastor James, how come you didn't rebuke me? You don't love me. <laughs> okay, okay, I love you. Come here. Let me rebuke you. I really love you, right? But he understands. I, Discipline, it takes care and love to discipline. And to be confronted, corrected, it's true love. Likewise, in our view of Christ. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of church discipline. It's church restoration. It's to reconcile. When we practice in our families, when our children sin against one another or sin against us, sin has come into our family. And sin divides, it corrodes and corrupts and pollutes relationships immediately. And that sin, if not dealt with like gangrene, it will spread. So, we strive to discipline sin. Why? To reconcile our child with God relationally, not spiritually. They're still unregenerate. But more, also to reconcile that child with us. Because when they sin against us, our relationship is hindered. There's division. There's corruption. And only way to restore that relationship is by dealing with it biblically. That's the purpose of church discipline. Second reason is because God's glory is at stake. God's glory is at stake. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about those that are outside the law and those that are under the law, Gentiles and Jews. And he talks about all the sins of the Gentiles, and there are many. And then he turns to the Jewish people. 
And he tells, speaks to them and he says, are you better because you have the law? It's, it's the deception that is so common um, to those who interact with the Word of God. I mean, we are surrounded by it. It is in us. All of us are infected by this deception where we think insight is the end. We think insight equals practice. Right? Knowledge equals godliness. And so just because we know truth, somehow we are righteous, we're sanctified merely by knowledge. That's why the scriptures over and over again warns us of this uh, sin in our flesh that so deceive us. And so how knowledge puffs us up. Knowledge causes us to be proud and arrogant because knowledge is not the end. Knowledge is the means to an end. Or the end must be practice. And the, and the lack of practice reveals that sin still reigns. And he talks to these Jews and he says to them in, in Romans 2.17, 2, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, if, sure, if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, you are a light to those who cannot see, you say you are an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, Paul says, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against others, do not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You know adultery is wrong. But what about you? Do you practice adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The truth is, you who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Man, what a thunderous accusation that sticks. Right? You boast in God's law, but you break it yourself. And then he ends in verse 24, As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Gentiles denigrate, malign the name of Yahweh, because of the behavior of the Jewish people. And likewise, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all reflect God's glory when sin is practiced by Christians. Our names are maligned, but not in comparison to how God's name is maligned. How God's glory is diminished. How God's honor is trampled upon by the world. We confront sin in ourselves. And in our church, because God's honor is at stake. To the degree we allow sin, to that degree, God's glory is diminished. John Calvin said this, The first end of church discipline is the protection of the Lord's honor against those who are called Christians, yet lead a filthy and infamous life. For since the church itself is the body of Christ, it cannot be corrupted by such foul and decaying members without disgrace falling upon its head. Christ is the head of the church. If there's sin in its members, disgrace will fall upon the head of the church, who is Christ. We neglect church discipline, then we're promoting hypocrisy instead of holiness. 
It corrupts the church, grieves the Lord, and dishonors God's name. So, we do it to love the believer, restore him or her, and ultimately for God's glory. The third end, third purpose, third motivation is to protect the church. Prevention of corruption of faithful believers by the constant company of the wicked. First Corinthians, let's turn here, First Corinthians five, eleven through thirteen. First Corinthians five, eleven through thirteen. You know, Paul, like any good preacher, was often misinterpreted, misunderstood. And that's the you know, heartache of I mean everyone but preachers of God's word. And so Paul said something and these Corinthians I think intentionally twisted it. And Paul corrects them of the true interpretation of what he had stated earlier. Verse 11, I am writing to you now to not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? <coughs> is it not those inside the church whom you ought to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says later that we would have to leave the world if we are to not associate with sinful people. Paul is saying if non-Christians are sinful, of course they are. And we are to engage them with our lives and with the gospel. We are to love non-believers who are in sin. And, you know, like what Dan said last week, party with them. Right? Eat and drink with them. Like Christ and the prostitutes. Christ and tax collectors. We should be in the highways and byways. Being in the world, though we're not of the world. Hanging out with sinners. You know, not sitting with them. But having relationship with them, offer the gospel. But for those who profess Christ, we deal with them differently because of the infectious nature of sin. Because sin spreads. A bad company corrupts good character. It's, it's, it's an axiom. It's a, the truth that is verified by Scripture and by experience. Bad company always corrupts good character. When a sinful, shameful act is committed in any church, that sin, that shame, that guilt is not confined to that person. But the whole church is to some extent contaminated. And again, we see this in our own family. And we strive to deal with sin immediately, as soon as possible. Why? Because we've got four at home and sin spreads. Right? Our children are like, you know, our Memphis basketball team. Right? They see a weakness and they exploit it to no end. And so our children, they know and they sense weakness in our, in our parenting. Right? And they tell each other, not verbally, but they all have this like sixth sense and they allow sin, we allow sin, they just keep on pushing and exploit it, and sin is out of control. 
But if we are diligent and we deal with it, like in Emma's you know, rolling of her eyes, in Elizabeth's tone of voice, in Ethan like punching the wall, right? That's all boys sin compared to girls. Right? Overtly, and we deal with it, it's contained, it's dealt with, and doesn't spread, and rest of the day is good. We don't deal with it, it's a long day, right? long week, long month, long life for these kids. Right. So it doesn't spread. The final purpose is for longevity and posterity. Longevity and posterity. For our future and for future generations. In 1554, John Calvin wrote to a pastor named Gaspar Lister. And he wrote this, I congratulate you on the tranquility of your church. I congratulate you. But it is greatly to be regretted that you do not possess with it, along with it, the sinews of discipline, the muscles of church discipline that, that is so necessary for its continuance. Kevin was saying, wow, you have a great church, but I'm so sad because it's not going to last. Within one generation, your church will be destroyed because within your church, you don't have muscle. Right? You have the heart, you have the mind, the doctrine of Christ, right? Christ and the Holy Spirit, but you don't have muscle of church discipline. So your church right, has a short life ahead of itself. And that is true. Any church that neglects this, neglects it, to it, neglects it at her own demise, she has a short future ahead of her right, where sin will always grow. Sin rolls downhill. Little sins wants, want to be big sins when they grow up. Right? Sin has only one ambition, to spread and to grow. And that happens, and then it filters to our children, and Cornerstone Bible Church will not be, like, if we were to be transported time in 40 years from now, we will not recognize our church. Right? And we will look back, and it's because, wow, we were negligent of the first commandment given to us by Christ. Well, let's turn to Matthew 18 and just go through the process of church restoration. Matthew 18, 15 through, I believe, 20. Verse 15. If your brother, right, key criterion here, brother, right, there are two categories of people, right, family and non-family, Christian and non-Christian, so, if a Christian sins, then we practice church discipline. If a non-Christian sins, we love them. We accept it. We're not about behavior modification. We're not about external righteousness. If unbelievers come to our church and they're dressed immodestly, we praise God for them, that they come to our church, that they're coming here. Right? We don't correct them or we don't you know, cover our children's eyes as if, we're saved or sanctified by separation, right? As if somehow that pollutes our church. Someone comes and, you know, maybe they're, I don't know, they're, they're in sin. They're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend or involved in all kinds of just moral things. We don't treat ourselves as if we're holy and they're unholy and we're righteous. And so they're sitting here. I'm sorry, guys. And you guys sit over there and separate yourselves. No. I, I, look at Christ. That's what the Pharisees did. Pharisees like, look who's touching Christ. 
This prostitute, we all know what she does for a living. And he's allowing her to touch him. Right? And Christ, what are you talking about? And so I, as, as followers of Christ, unbelievers' sins, we're thankful that they're here. We love them, welcome them. We share our Christian love and we share the gospel. But in no way are we to judge them and, and uh, you know, rebuke or censure them in any way. Right? It's, if your brother sins, it's a family issue. If a professing Christian sins, then it's Matthew 18. And here it's sins. It's active voice. It's sins of commission, not sins of omission. So we don't rebuke people, confront people for um, not obeying Christ, not evangelizing, not praying, not trusting. Right? For what you what you're not doing, we don't. That's omission, right? Then I'd be disciplined every day of the week. I mean, several times my wife will discipline for not picking up my socks, you know, not doing the dishes, right? Not changing time. I mean, come on, like that's not. If your brother sins, commits an overt act of sin, sin of commission, not sin of omission. Sin is hamartano, right? Missing the mark, missing the God of mark of God's standards, offense against God's holiness, corrupting the holiness of God's people, right? If that happens, then don't, you know, call people, don't email the leaders, don't slander. That's, that's sin. Someone sins. And 95% of church discipline should be dealt, I mean, actually, 95% should be dealt in our own hearts. We confront our own sins, right? It's, it's self-discipline. Right? You, you know, you sin, and you go to that person, hey, brother, I sinned against you. You know, I, I said those things, and I, forgive me, brother. Hey, you know, I, I did this, and I confess. Will you forgive me? 95% of sin should be dealt with that way. And then 4.9%, uh, right? I'm, I'm trying to calculate here. 4.9% should be dealt here in the privacy of this one-on-one fellowship. You go to that person in private, no one else knows. I know what you did. I'm not going to tell anyone. You're A, B, C, D, E, F, G. This is what you did. This is what the Bible says. Right? And then I'll talk about this later, but I have a plank in my own eye. Man, I know. Like, I sin as well. But you sinned against God. It's wrong. Will you repent? And if the person repents in that private, intimate fellowship, never brought up again. It's forgiven, forgotten, cast down the deepest part. As far as east or the west, so far as God removed that transgressions from us, we're not to bring it back. It's forgiven. It's gone. Never brought up again. And it doesn't become a sour note in your relationship with that person at all. And you never share it with anybody. Right? But in that 0.10%, the person is stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious, obstinate, right in his own eyes, and has no conviction. Right? It's rationalizing, justifies, it's defensive, blame-shifting. Right? In no way agrees. And, you know, goes, ah, he said, she said, you say this, you know, you say tomato, I say tomato. Who's right, who's wrong? Right? It's arbitrary. Then you go to step two. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I believe in sin. So we need to get two or three others to come and to, you know, be arbiters between us and also be witnesses to this process of church discipline. And these two or three witnesses in semi-private fellowship come and they observe the church discipline. And if they say, you know what, it's not sin, and it's a preferential matter, right? It's okay, you know, not to 
match colors in your clothing, right? It's okay to sing secular songs, right? Happy birthday to you is a secular song. It's all right. Now, Mary had a little lamb as a secular song. For you to, you know, think that's sin, you just <laughs> need some help, you know. Like, that's not in any, any way, shape, or form close to being sin. You are just you know, out of line here. Or, you know, it is sin. And we are witness to the fact that you went through the correct process, and it's step two, and we are witnesses that this person didn't respond in repentance. Now, if the person does respond in repentance, in that semi-prior fellowship, forgive and forgotten, never brought up again, those two or three people, they have this band of brothers. They've experienced this heart-wrenching episode together. And they're bound together by the, by the gospel. They've experienced God's grace. They've seen firsthand how God and His gospel softens hearts, turns hearts, produces true confession, true remorse, godly sorrow, true repentance. And you've experienced God's grace together. And you are like just bound together forever because of this sweet experience of restoration that person doesn't repent, and you go to step three. And this is where point 0.01%. You tell the church, step three. Verse 17, <coughs> if he refuses to listen to them, and listen as like receive. It's not just, you know, I'm not going to listen to you, but I don't receive. I don't take to heart. Right? I, don't, I don't open my heart to you. If he refuses, tell it to the church. A very serious and grave step where it's announced to the whole church, and we do this in our communion services, where the church of Christ is gathered, and the purpose is twofold, is for the whole church to pursue the sinning believer for restoration. Right? It's not, I'm going to tattletale. Right? No, it's to, you, know, you guys know this person. Some of you right, have different relationships and different inroads to that person's heart through some orchestration of God that He has provided for you. You have a special inroad. We employ the whole church because we love God's glory so much. We love this person so much. We all pursue this person in love to restore them back to Christ and back to us. That's the first purpose. Second purpose is shame. Shame. Sin. There's shame and sin being exposed to the whole church. There's shame there. And shame has a Biblical shame has an effect of softening hearts. A godly sorrow, producing repentance. So we tell it to the church, whole church pursue this, pursues this person. And at that point, the person says, okay, you're, you're right, I see it. I was sinned. That happens in the public fellowship. We gather together, we all experience the sweet grace of God. Mercy of God that saves us all. We see how we're all sinners. We all sin against God. This one is not a greater sinner than us. No, we're all sinners. And how God's mercy is lavished upon us. So just as God has forgiven us, we forgive this brother or sister in Christ and restore him or her to our fellowship. And we experience the church in that moment of our lives. People that come and join our church after that, they don't experience it. But at that point, all of us that are there gathered experience the sweet means of grace of God. And we forgive, forgotten, never brought up again. But even at that point, the person refuses to listen. Then step four, 17b, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. All right. So it's excommunication. All right. Jews did not associate with Gentiles. 
they did not touch Gentiles. They did not dine with Gentiles. They considered them pagans. Right? They didn't enter into their homes. There was no koinonia. There was no fellowship with uh, Gentiles. There, there was no relationship with them. Right? Or tax collectors. Tax collectors were considered traitors to the nation of Israel. Right? They were those who turned away from God and His laws and God's people all for some other reason. Tax collectors is money, but like, you know, for, for a Christian, it's, they love the world, they love their friends, they love things in this world. For whatever reason, they betrayed Christ and Christ's church. We are to treat them in that way <clears throat> so that God might use this to restore that person. And also, his honor will be defended his honor will be vindicated. Right? That's how we are to uh, relate to those who are unrepentant in their, in their sins. Those who profess Christ. That means um, someone who is disciplined, wants to have lunch with you, you say, no, I, I cannot and I will not because you have not been restored. Reconciled to Christ and to Christ's church. So I beg of you to repent. I want nothing more than to break bread with you, but I cannot and I will not. If someone wants to hang out and fellowship, they want to in some way engage you in a relationship or a friendship, it is not a possibility. We talked about this. What about if your family member is church disciplined? Well, you relate to them as a family member. They're still... A father, mother, brother, sister, cousin, nephew. Whatever. You relate to them as a family, as a blood relative, but not as a spiritual relative. You don't relate to them as a Christian. You relate to them as a non-Christian, those outside the spiritual family of Christ. They're to be totally ostracized from the fellowship of the church. They can no longer enjoy the blessings of church fellowship. This process ends only if the person repents, the person dies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, rebelled against the Nazi Reich, Third Reich. While many of his fellow Christians compromised and uh, were silent and uh, worked with uh, Hitler and his <coughs> cohorts, he was in prison, concentration camp, and he was killed in Antigua. This is what he wrote in his book, Life Together. Sin demands that a man be by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, (coughs) the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of the person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden must be made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted, but God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. 
since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all his evil. He gives his heart to God. And he finds the forgiveness of all his sin in the fellowship of Christ and his brothers. We are to stand in Christ in this way because sin concealed separates him from the fellowship. But sin confessed restores him to Christ and to the brethren. We do this even to this last step for the purpose that person hoping that he will confess so that he might be restored to Christ and restored to the church. And Christ tells us in verses 18 to 20 the authority by which we have this, the authority for church discipline. <coughs> Where we get this authority to practice this. I tell you the truth, verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now here, there is nothing here about demon possession, casting out demons, binding demons. That's not the context at all. And verse 20 is not about corporate prayer. When we gather together in prayer, we quote Matthew 18:20 and say, God, we know you're here because there's two and three of us. When I'm alone, you're not here, but you're here because you know, there's two or three. Right? So we thank God you know, that you're here. That's, that's, mis, that's out of context. That's, 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 that's not what that these verses are teaching. It's uh, Christ granting to the church um, authority to practice church discipline. If we bind someone and say, we agree this person's in sin, God will bind it. If we set loose, we say this person is forgiven. He or she has confessed. We see fruits of confession. We accept him or her. And we forgive. God sets loose. On the basis of two or three witnesses, two or three who witness this church process and they tell the church, the church agrees, I am with them. I am behind them. I agree with them. Verse 20 is about the special presence of Christ that is with the church when they take seriously the first commandment given to the church. Giving his personal stamp of approval of his promise and granting the authority to the church by his word to carry out this process. How do we know? Because it's given to us in the word of God that we have this authority. It's not by you know, apostolic succession of the popes. That's not the keys of the church. No, it's through Scripture we have this authority to practice church restoration. Now, let me just add a few things here. Um, Some miscellaneous thoughts to conclude our time. First of all, our attitude in church discipline is so important. Church restoration. Our attitude. Our attitude must first and foremost be humble. And humility is um, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your own eye. So Christ is not telling us not to correct or confront. He is telling us to do it, but to do it first by removing the plank out of our own eyes. Introspection. When we see sin in others, the first response must be, what about me? What about my life, my heart? Right? I was um, at 24 a few weeks ago, and recently I've been doing the steam room thing. You know, you work out and you go to the steam room, and I don't know, it just feels good. Stay over 20 minutes. We rarely talk. It's kind of an uncomfortable environment to be talking to others, right? Two or three guys in there, you know, shirts off, kind of not a real time for fellowship or anything. But two or three guys are in there, and this one guy goes, Hey, did you hear about? Are you guys into politics? I'm like, yeah, I'm into politics. Let's talk about politics. And he's like, did you hear about you know, Elliot Spitzer and what happened with him and you know, adultery? And I'm thinking, that's not politics, right? <laughs> that's like, you know, that's like God. That's like slam. Whatever, that's, whatever. that's not politics. And he's going off and on, off and on, on and on, off and on, on and on about it. I thought, <laughs> you know, a steam room is hot. So he's on and on and on about like, you know, Elliot Spitzer, how immoral and how could he do that? I say, you know, I don't know you, sir, but, you know, man, Christ said, and by God's grace, you know, Christ said, then you look at the woman, let's just free. You know, you've committed adultery. I don't know you, sir, but I know that that sins in my heart. What about you? Oh, he didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear it at all. He wanted to just accuse this man of infidelity. And yes, he's guilty. He's wrong, you know, Elliot Spitzer. But, I mean, plant got our own eye. Right? So that's what, that's what sin does to us. That's why it's so um, beneficial to our church when we see sin in others. So what that does is it promotes true humility. Because it forces us, and it ought to force us to look at ourselves in the mirror, mirror of God's Word, and consider our own lives. And is that, is that me? Is that what I look like? Is that what I'm doing? Is that how I'm discouraging others? Is that how I'm blaspheming God's name? Is that what I'm doing in the church? Oh my goodness, I am doing that. I have been, that's who, that's me. I'm far worse than that brother. All along I'm pointing fingers and I see I'm guilty of worse. And so you do that spiritual self-surgery. You employ your husband or wife. You employ your close Christian friends. And like you benefit. And then you can see clearly. See, after you do that, you go to that sinning believer believer. And you have a better understanding of that sin. Because you've performed, you're not like a, you know, first time intern, like doing surgery for the first time. I'm just going to do surgery and hope I don't make a mistake. No, you've done surgery before. You've done it on yourself. You have experience. You have a better understanding of the spiritual cancer. So when you perform it on someone else, you have a better understanding of all the nuanceical issues that are involved with this sin. The heart issue that is involved with this sin. You're, you're see clear. You're a better, uh, uh, Surgeon, spiritual surgeon for it. And you'll do it with greater, far greater humility. You'll do it with graciousness and with gentleness. And that must be the attitude that you wear as you, as we do this. Alright? Galatians 6.1 If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Alright? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 2 Corinthians 2.7 
make sure that he is not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You want to promote godly sorrow, but you want to make sure you know how mature is this believer, right? What kind of personality, what kind of constitution, what kind of character, what kind of life experience? You know, is he older than me, younger than me, right? You know, what stage of life is he in? You need to consider all these things. Consider all these uh, angles so that there is proper dosage of godly sorrow. You don't pound it on, right? You're unloading on this person and the person is overwhelmed and is disheartened. I have to doubly check that in my, my life because, because of my role as a pastor, right? Like, you know, people are very sensitive and I make that mistake all the time. I sin that way all the time because I, I just think I'm just a regular guy and I'm just unloading. And I realize, well, because of my role and position in the church, I must be like five times more gracious and gentle and, and com- humble and kind. And you guys know how do- hard that is for me. But all the more I had to do that. But likewise for all of us. Right, gentle and humble. Right? We must do this with love and not anger. And parents, we know this. And we discipline our children with anger. There's no restoration there. Right, that's, that's pride acting out. So as parents, we're so often tempted to discipline out of anger. So often, and, and that anger re- demonstrates pride, reveals pride in us. Like this pharisaical self-righteousness. Likewise, if you are disciplining and if you're correcting someone and confronting you have anger in your heart, that's a warning sign. There's pride. There's this right self-righteousness. There's legalism. There's this vindictiveness in your heart that's not proper at all. There's still many planks for you to work on in your own eye right before you can discipline. But you must do that. You can't say, oh, I'll discipline in five years and all my planks are gone. Right? You can't delay obeying Christ because of sin in our lives. We'll always be sin in our lives. We must properly deal with ourselves and correct and confront. Secondly, if someone does confront and correct you, I mean, be thankful. Right? Be humble. Be gracious. Right? If it's sin, go to the Scriptures. If it's sin, confess. Right? Any self-rationalized, justifying raging in our hearts. That's pride. That's how we became Christians, by confessing. And we are always to be confessing, always to be repenting. Right. And have that be an opportunity to, to grow and to learn more about yourself by asking further questions, follow-up questions, to see in what other ways that you have sinned or offended others. Right. Be be grateful, be thankful to God and to that person that that person would love God and love the church and love you enough to take to do this difficult thing. Right? Thirdly, understand that church discipline is church discipline. It's not elders' discipline or pastors' or flock shepherd discipline. We're not, um, you know, attorney generals of the church. We're not. Uh, police detectives of the church. We're not investigators. Right? It's not us rebuking, correcting, confronting. It's the church doing it. Like, don't do that to us. Don't have this us and them mentality. I had this when I was in high school. I was a bad student. Right? So I had this us and them. Teachers are our enemies. Right? They're up to get us. So our job is to like, you know, 
make fun of them and skirt the rules and like get away with it and ha, ah, we won, right? That, don't do that to us in the church, right? right? We invited our family to have dinner with us a few years ago and they sat down and the first question they asked is, are you going to rebuke us, right? Why did you invite us to dinner? What did we do wrong? I know, like come on. Just want to, you know, have dinner, play settlers, you know, and have fun. We'll rebuke you afterwards, you know, but that, no, I'm just kidding. No, no rebuke at all. We just want to hang out with you, right? So, so don't view like, oh, the elder, they're there to like watch us and, oh, he's here, you know, so we've got to like, you know, be on our best behavior. No, we've got to be on our best behavior before Christ and the church because church discipline is what the church does and you tell us step three and four. We don't tell you, you tell us. Um, three more. Next one, unbelievers again. Welcome them to our church. If they're uncomfortable because of the gospel, if they're offended by, the, by our preaching and our pursuit of holiness, hey, so be it. Right? We're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. We're not going to you know, hide our colors, right? We're not going to be red-faced and like hold back on what we believe to be true in our own church. Right? Never. Right? If they're offended by those things, right, they rightfully should be offended. Right? They, they should stumble because of Christ and they have their hearts shattered by the rock of Christ and, and be saved. But they should not be offended because of our religiosity, because of our pharisaicalism, because of our legalism, because of our personal standards. Right? They sin as non-believers. Man, credit to you if you reach out to that person and welcome them, love them. In spite of all the dirtiness and messiness of their lives, and it's clear and evident, I credit to you if you go out and reach out and love and extend, be an extension of the whole church and the leaders and loving that person in Christ. Right? We're, we want to be get about getting to the root of heart transformation, not behavior modification. Right? Let's lovingly welcome anyone and everyone who are in this world. Right? We're not sanctified by separation. We are sanctified by faith. The world cannot pollute us by their behavior. And we cannot be made pure by being separated from them physically. We are made pure by our faith in the gospel and our active obedience to it. Um, nextly, understand uh, that godly relationships are a means of grace. So all of us have sin, but because what sin does is, like Adam and Eve, they ran and hid from God. And they hid from one another. They were not ashamed before. When they sinned, they covered themselves. Adam and Eve, husband and wife relationship. And they hid themselves from God. That's what sin does. What sin does is it wants, uh, wants to be isolated, wants to hide, wants to go to darkness. And we don't want people in our lives. And we want people not to know who we are. But that's not glorifying to God. That's not love. That's not sanctification. For us to be sanctified, it's not going into our rooms and our closet and praying and reading the Bible. We are sanctified through the means of grace of the church. And 
A key means it's relationships, godly friendships. So, um, invite people into your lives. Have have an open door policy, open heart policy, and move everything out of your closet into the front lawn. Everything from the back lawn to the front lawn. For your friends to see, for your your neighbors, your friends to see your life. Because it will only benefit you. It will only help you. It will only cause you to grow more in Christ. It doesn't benefit you at all by hiding. In fact, it will be destructive to your spiritual walk. It will harm you. And it will cause you more and more to be isolated. Overcome this fear of man. Overcome this self-love. Right? So accepting God's means of grace, open your lives, your hearts to, to others. I know it's a difficult thing. We've had people live with us. We've had like in an off family live with us for like, you know, a long time. No. <laughs> and I would like say, oh man, you know, the pastor and pastor's wife. And like, man, they're going to see like everything, right? Because they're moving in with us. We see them less. They see us. They see everything. We're like, hide everything. No, we do that. We're like, come and look. Right? And tell us. Correct us. Rebuke us. Right? Because I know and we've benefited so much as a family from, from that. Right? And then finally, um, I don't know this is hard, but if a believer at any point confesses and repents, our response is verses 21 through 35. Alright? Next very passage tells us if a brother repents, our response must not be the unforgiving servant. Our response must be, and you guys know this parable, right? God has forgiven me of a million dollar debt. And this person, right, sinned a dollar's worth. So am I going to withhold God's forgiveness and my forgiveness for a dollar? I can't forgive that debt when God forgave me of a million dollars? What a cruel and wicked man I am if I withhold forgiveness. I must lavish forgiveness because I'm responding not to the sin or sinner. I'm responding to the cross and the forgiveness that I have received. So I have been so, by grace, undeserved merit. I've been lavished. I've been poured out freely, received grace. I must freely Give. We must not be the proud brother of the prodigal son. <coughs> right? The prodigal son comes back, and the proud brother. I'm, I can't forgive him. The only reason he came back was because he ran out of money. The only reason he came back was because of the famine. And what does he do? He shames my dad, shames our family, right? And he loses. If he comes back making money, okay, maybe I'll be a little happy, but he loses all of it. And now we've got to accept him back as our family. I'll never do this when all along I've been nothing but righteous. Right? Christ rebukes the proud son and he's pointing to the Pharisees and he's pointing to us if we will not forgive, freely forgive, lavishly forgive any brother who confesses and repents. We are being um, proud in our self-righteousness and we are being prodigal sons. We are leaving Christ we are leaving the gospel. Our hearts must be welcome back. Our hearts must be joy, pure joy. Our hearts must be celebration. 
Our hearts must be welcoming back full unity with us in every way because we stand together not because of our faithfulness, not because of our righteousness. We are together because of God's grace through the gospel. So because of that, every sinner who repents is welcome to sit with us and dine with us at Christ's table. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. We bless your name. How you, uh, the beauty of the gospel is seen, even in difficult uh, commands and difficult difficult areas as this. Lord, uh, we thank you for these clear, precise instructions given to us for our benefit and for your glory. Lord, may we excel in loving one another, like caring for one another uh, spiritually, caring one another's souls, all so that people might see uh, your beauty and your glory in and through us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.